Thank you all for joining us at this hour. We have breaking news tonight, as I just mentioned. If your calendar was marked for this coming Monday when President Trump was set to hold a press conference that he promised would exonerate him from the allegations laid out in that Fulton County indictment, if that was a date that was reserved on your iCal, well, then I am sorry to inform you that it has been called off. Trump says tonight that his legal team is instead putting all of the overwhelming evidence in formal legal filings. He adds, therefore, the news conference is no longer necessary. And that news comes right after Trump's legal team in another case finally gave its answer as to when they believe the former president should go to trial. Trump's team is arguing tonight that the federal 2020 election case brought by special counsel Jack Smith should go to trial in April of 2026. That is a whopping two years, seven months, and 16 days from now. It notably comes well after the point in which Trump could be back in office and able to pardon himself or just make this case disappear altogether. And his legal team's justification for this date is classically Trumpy. Remember, if you will, when President Trump first took office and had to prove to everyone that he had disentangled himself from his business interests. And he stood next to this giant pile of folders. There they are. And claimed they contained the evidence that he had signed everything over to his sons. Now, Trump refused to let anyone actually look at the contents of those folders. But hey, it was it was a lot of paper. It was a lot of folders. And today, the argument from his defense team felt a bit like that. In their formal, formal legal filing, the defense included this graph showing the height in feet of all the evidence Jack Smith will turn over to the defense and comparing that height to the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument. You'll see the the discovery evidence is a lot taller than both the Statue of Liberty and the Washington Monument. Trump's counsel compared getting through all that evidence to having to read the entirety of Tolstoy's War and Peace 78 times a day from now until December, which honestly sounds like the homework assignment from hell. And they do have a a point. It is quite a bit of reading. War and Peace 78 times a day. That said, we have no idea how much of the evidence provided here will be duplicate information or how much of it includes things that Trump has always had access to, like, for example, the contents of his own Twitter account. Moreover, typically it's not just one person doing all that reading. It's why people retain entire legal teams to help them in cases like this. Nonetheless, Trump and his lawyers argue that they will not be ready to go to trial until April of the year 2026 which is a decidedly different date than the one proposed by Jack Smith's team, which would like a trial date set for January 2nd of the year 2024, which is well before the presidential election. Ultimately, both of these dates are just suggestions. The trial date in this case is the judge's decision. And at a hearing last Friday, the judge presiding over this case made it very clear that a key deciding factor here, as far as the date, was going to be how Trump conducted himself outside of the courtroom. This is what she said, quote, even arguably ambiguous statements from parties or their counsel, if they could reasonably interpret it to intimidate witnesses or to prejudice potential jurors, can threaten the process. The more a party makes inflammatory statements about this case, which could taint the jury pool or intimidate potential witnesses, the greater the urgency will be that we proceed to trial quickly. 
There are a lot of reasons to think that Trump's April of 2026 date is unrealistic, but this, the one outlined by the judge, might be number one. And look at what happened today, for example. Today, Trump and his former attorney general, Bill Barr, had dueling interviews. Trump was on Fox Business, Barr was on Fox News, and both of them were happening at 4 p.m. Remember that Bill Barr announced his resignation as attorney general on the day that the Trump fake electors met all over the country, December 14th, 2020. Trump had asked Barr to use the Department of Justice to do things like name a special counsel to investigate voter fraud and to use the Department of Justice to seize voting machines. So Barr is a potentially key witness here. And Barr has said, as recently as this month, that he will appear as a witness if called to do so. And so in the hours before Trump's and Barr's dueling interviews, Trump posted this online. Why does Fox News constantly put on slow thinking and lethargic Bill Barr, who didn't have the courage to fight election fraud? Then after the interview, Trump reposted Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's claims that Bill Barr is a traitor. Also today, Trump has reposted or posted similar arguably ambiguous threatening things about potential key witnesses, including his former vice president, Mike Pence, as well as Georgia's governor, its former lieutenant governor, and its secretary of state. And also today, again, he posted a bunch of videos like this. How dare low-life prosecutor deranged Jack Smith. That's right, he's deranged. Deranged Jack Smith and the DOJ. The fake political indictment against me must be immediately withdrawn. The system is rigged and corrupt, very much like the presidential election of 2020, and we have plenty of proof on that. Does that kind of stuff count as the type of arguably ambiguous statements that might be perceived as threats? Joining me now to get to the bottom of all that is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, as well as Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. Thank you both for being here. Barb, let me first start with you and the old, but the documents are taller than the Washington Monument defense. Honestly, have you ever seen an argument similar to this one, complete with a graphic showing how the discovery evidence would, would measure up to the Statue of Liberty? No, and I have not seen a defendant so desperate to delay the trial that they're asking for a date more than two years down the road. It's a really audacious request. Uh, you know, it's not only the defendant that has a right to a speedy trial. It is also the public that has a right to a speedy trial. The public is, has an interest in a, a uh, reasonably prompt disposition so that a person can either be held accountable or exonerated. And there's also an interest in making sure that witness memories don't fade and that the evidence is still available when the case goes to trial. This argument about there are terabytes of documents here uh, is true in, in not only this case, but in other cases as well. No doubt it will take some time to work through all of this. But no longer is it the world where you sit down with each page and page through it. Uh, the way discovery is reviewed today is it is sorted, it is searchable. Uh, the way you would go about a modern uh, computer search and, and not the way you would read War and Peace at the time it was written. Yeah. But, you know, hat tip for the Tolstoy reference, Mark. I, what is so abundantly clear in this day of all days, the day that Trump is trying to kick this trial to 2026 is the same day that he's out there making exactly the kind of statements that could be perceived as witness intimidation, stuff that will automatically trigger the judge to move the trial date up in time. I mean, how do you square the sort of desperation that is evident in this legal filing as it pertains to the trial date and the behavior of the client who's at the center of all of this? 
Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, like so many things with with Trump world, I mean, this does not seem terribly well thought out. I mean, I think what's what's I mean, OK, so the 2026 date, the proposed date is it's something of a joke. I mean, look how people have responded to it. Um, you know, I would, of course, worry that it would interfere with the midterm elections of 2026. No one talks yes. about that, Alex. But um but there, there's actually going to be a very serious response to this. And at some point, the judge will weigh in on this probably sooner rather than later, especially as Trump and and many of his surrogates continue to sort of press her hand and and, you know, behave on lot in in ways that are very close to the line, if not over the line. So at, at some point, she's going to have to give a very solemn um, assessment of this and it will probably come sooner. So there, as you said, as you suggested, I mean, this is working against his interests if, in fact, he wants to delay this as long as possible. Yeah. And just another sort of legal note, Barb. I mean, to your point, this evidence will be sort of digested in a way that is not like reading War and Peace. There's also the manpower concern, right? It's not just one lawyer that's going to be tasked with doing that, presumably. But we talked about this last night. Trump does have a weirdly skeletal legal crew assisting him in all of this. I think Todd Blanche, who's representing Trump in three cases, is part of a law firm that has two lawyers. And the question, I think, at some point needs to be posed, when will Trump actually spend the money to hire more lawyers to deal with all this? I mean, that seems like a necessity at this point, does it not? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the time in a big white collar case like this, you'll retain a firm that has sufficient resources where they can call upon a number of associates or even temporary associates that come on board to do discovery review. And, you know, there'll be a lawyer overseeing all of it, telling them what it is they're looking for. Uh, and then the lawyers review that for, for the kinds of things that they need. So uh, certainly more resources can come to bear than just one lawyer reading each page of the document. And um, I think what's going to happen is first a trial date will get set and then he will retain the lawyers he needs to meet that deadline. Mark, you know, as we talk about how incorrigible Trump's behavior is here and everywhere, it isn't worth noting that he canceled the press conference that he was supposed to have on Monday, which I know was marked in your calendar and all read. You were busy all day, I'm sure, um, because of the advice from his lawyers. I mean, does that signal to you? And I know I think I can answer my own question before I even finish it. But does that signal to you that there is some part of Trump and the Trumpy reptilian brain that is aware of the legal peril he is in and at least occasionally listening to counsel? Yeah, one would hope. I mean, I, I think, I mean, the the big question is, I mean, sort of optic-wise, I mean, I have a feeling Donald Trump is not going to sit next week out. I don't know if this means he's more likely to go to the debate in Milwaukee on Wednesday, um, if he'll have something, you know, you know, kind of dramatic up his sleeve there. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't count him out of the news cycle next week by by any stretch. I mean, this is not something that he does, as we know. But but also, I mean, just because he's standing down and saying, OK, this will be in the legal filing, which, you know, does seem to make some sound legal sense for once. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways that he can get into the news and could have insin- insinuate himself into uh, what's going to be a very big sort of week for the Republican uh, campaign next week. Yes, I'm sure this is not the only time we're going to be hearing from Donald Trump about his exoneration. Barb, I got to ask, you know, to give the defense team any sort of credit here, they raise the issue of classified material that we now know may be part of this discovery process. They talk about how the government is offering its own edit of relevant documents and saying we shouldn't have to go by our accuser's um, selection of what's relevant. Do they have a point here 
in any of this filing that that the judge will listen to that that could cause the judge to actually say, you know what, January is far too soon. I'm going to give you, I don't know, July. I mean, do you see any relevant points here that are going to give the judge pause as she schedules the trial date? Sure. You know, and and I think Jack Smith tried to accommodate those things as well. You know, the 70 days is the first, usually the first trial date that gets issued. Um, But, you know, January is still, what, um, five months away. Uh, But no doubt there are issues that I think uh, could cause a judge to believe that more time is necessary than that. Uh, As you point out, the uh, small amount of classified information is one thing that they will have to deal with. We don't know exactly what that is. But people may need clearances. They need to figure out how they're going to handle that. So that'll take some time. Um, And then um, also the idea that um, you've got um, other kinds of things that need to be reviewed before then, that there is a significant volume of documents here. All of that makes sense. The judge has to decide what really is due process here, what amount of time is reasonable by balancing both the defendant's need to have reasonable preparation, but also the government's right to protect the public interest in a speedy trial. Yeah. When we talk about the trial, whenever it's scheduled, Mark, the reality is that journalists, Americans, other candidates are going to be witnessing the strangest split screen probably in American political history, which is, do we have the calendar? You have the Iowa caucuses on the 15th of January. You have Trump's civil defamation case the same day, Trump's civil fraud case. Two weeks later, the month of March is peppered with caucuses and trials. I mean, this, this is, the, this is what, this is what election season 2024 is going to be. And it truly is like, unlike anything we have ever seen in this country. The fact that the presumed frontrunner is going to be bouncing back, ping-ponging between, you know, pressing the flesh in in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina and and going on trial. This seems like the reality that we're barreling towards. Yeah, no, it does make your head explode in some ways. I mean, what... I mean, what I actually am curious about is whether Donald Trump actually welcomes this. I mean, you know, obviously no one wants to be indicted four times and on however many counts. I mean, this is not an enviable position to be in. But when you're someone who's as pathological as Donald Trump is and, and, and feeds on the attention as much as he does, and someone who's been so successful in leveraging attention like this, you know, in some cases, very negative attention into political capital, I mean, you have to wonder, I mean, could he just be so happy that this is, he's going to be in the middle of all this. And, you know, yes, it's a split screen, but he'll actually be on both screens. I mean, it's a weird, weird thing. And I wouldn't, I know, it's, but it's true. I mean, it's what we're looking at. And, you know, it feels kind of hellish. I mean, certainly it's fascinating, but, but it's also, um, you know, you're right. It's unprecedented. So I don't know that I would even use the modifier kind of, maybe just kinda, hellish. Yeah. Trying to be responsible here. Yeah, I understand. Respect. Barbara Mm -hmm. McQuaid and Mark Leibovich, thank you guys so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have much more still ahead, including new threats against the jurors who recommended Donald Trump's fourth indictment and what Fulton County is doing to protect those citizens. But first, the Republican response to their frontrunners, 91 felony charges. Just take it to the ballot box. That's the response. And that's next. Stay with us.
here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. It is frankly impossible for Republicans to ignore the onslaught of legal peril surrounding their frontrunner in the presidential primary right now. But as far as their responses to all that go, well, those responses range. Fight the allegations, deny everything, or do whatever this is. They're trying to send a message loud and clear, and the message is don't mess with us. And why are they going after Trump? Because he messed with them. He challenged them across the board. He challenged their pro-war policies. He's challenged them on Ukraine. He's challenged their globalist agenda. Republican Senator Josh Hawley arguing that Donald Trump's legal troubles are not a result of mishandling classified information or trying to overthrow the democratically elected government. No, Hawley says that Donald Trump is being targeted because he challenged the globalist agenda. Remember, this is the same Josh Hawley who egged on the January 6th rioters with an enthusiastic fist bump in the morning and then was later spotted running, sprinting to safety once the insurrection began. In that moment, when he was running... Senator Hawley might have identified the mob he was running from as a group of Trump supporters trying to overthrow the government. But if you ask Senator Hawley about that same mob today, he would tell you that the mob was simply an expression of defiance against a globalist cabal. So those are some of the Republican defenses that have been floated since Trump's fourth indictment this week. And here is one more. January the 6th, I was there. I saw it. He was impeached over it. The American people can decide whether they want him to be president or not. This should be decided at the ballot box, not in a bunch of liberal jurisdictions trying to put the man in jail. This is Joe Biden and this is the Democrats weaponizing the justice system because they're afraid of the voters. I understand that Democrats and liberals in the media can't stand Donald Trump um, and they'll do anything to stop him. But it would be much better from their point of view and the point of view of the country if they try to stop him on the campaign trail and at the ballot box and let the American people make these choices. Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton are making the argument that Donald Trump should not be held accountable for his actions in a court of law. Instead, Donald Trump's future should be decided by the will of the voters. The thing is, though, we already tried that. And the last time Trump and his allies were given the chance to obey the will of the voters in 2020, 
they decided they did not like what the voters had to say. They did not like the will of the voters. And so then they tried to overthrow the results of the election. And that is the essence of at least two of these indictments here. And so perhaps as a backstop to that strategy, there is another contingent of Republicans in Congress just trying to shut the whole thing down. CBS News reported this week that there are not one, not two, but three Republican-backed proposals in Congress to defund Jack Smith's investigation as a way to stop his charges from ever reaching a courtroom. Joining me now is former United States Senator Claire McCaskill. Claire, thank you for being here. We we put that Josh Hawley sound in there just for you. But I would like you to respond to the notion that 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 Donald Trump is being uh, indicted because he's pushing back against a globalist cabal. Does that hold any water for you, Claire? Well, well, it's stupid. Um, And these guys are all lawyers. And three of them went to an Ivy League. I think three of them went to Harvard. Uh, I mean, Harvard has to be so embarrassed at this point. You know, this is Alice in Wonderland stuff, Alex. When the impeachment happened after the, the, the president tried to mastermind a conspiracy to hold on to power, uh, to foment a big lie about the election, to push for an insurrection. They all said, and Ted Cruz said it specifically, you know, we have courts for this. We should not convict him on the impeachment because we have courts, right? So now the rule of law is doing what it must in this country, and that is recognize the facts and apply the law. And what are these guys saying now? Oh, well, let's let the voters speak. They are hiding under their desks. Uh, it's a, a bunch of cowards making things up. And they're going to be in trouble in November because the vast majority of the country kind of sees what they're doing. Yeah. You know, I, pointing out the fact that they all, I mean, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, these are guys, these are guys that have gone to top tier law schools who are highly educated in the law and who for a time were seen as the leading lights of, of the next generation of Republican leaders. I find it staggering that this is the position that they're taking. And I think when you couple that with the polling that we have, a new poll, this is from Semaphore this morning, finds that Donald Trump's legal troubles could provide, prove fatal in a general election. It finds that 24% of Republicans say the charges make them less likely to vote for Trump against Biden. I mean, listen, polling is what it is, but that is the first indicator I think that we have that this is not nothing. This is not business as usual. And I wonder the degree to which you think, you know, there is any kind of internal recalibration inside the, the higher echelons of the Republican Party. I think people are scared to death in the higher echelons of the party because here's the problem. They're in a boxed canyon, handcuffed to the base. More than 50% of the people who call themselves Republicans in America are for Donald Trump, in spite of almost 100 felony counts against him in both state and local jurisdictions, in state and federal jurisdictions. So they they cannot go against this base. They're too afraid. They can if they have, were real leaders. They won't go against this base. But the vast majority of independents, which is a growing sector of the electorate, the independents are up now, according to Gallup, close to 50%. The majority of the independents in this country don't want more Donald Trump. And certainly the Democrats don't. So they do not have a path to victory in the general election and they kind of know it. And Trump has kind of rigged it, too. Speaking of rigging, he switched a bunch of states to winner take all. 
So these other Republican candidates, if they can't beat him outright in a bunch of states, he takes all the delegates from those states, which makes it very difficult for anybody who's polling at 10, 15, even 20 percent now to ever have a chance. Yes. Um, Ron DeSantis, we're talking to you. Claire, I, I do wonder you know, of the things that the Republicans are doing to make the problem go away, other than saying, let, let this be decided at the ballot box. We chose to highlight this push in Congress to defund the special counsel's office, because as much as I would sort of wave that away as a harebrained fringe right wing idea, we're talking about a speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who is, you know, willing to abide almost any lunatic idea that his base floats out there, whether it's packing appropriations bills with political non-starters, what have you. I mean, do you think that the idea that special counsel Jack Smith should be his efforts should be defunded could actually emerge as a line of argument with this modern Republican conference. Not going to happen in the Senate. I can tell you that for sure. Keep in mind that there's a lot of senators that are from states where they have to win the independent voters to stay in office. Uh, they're not gerrymandered. You have states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Nevada, Montana, where people want to get elected and they can't do it without independent voters. So they are never going to go for defunding Jack Smith at this point. That's never going to happen. All it's going to do is make the Republican Party look more isolated from most Americans right now. You know, you. I think the metaphor of a box canyon is so right, but weirdly, equally, they also have an off-ramp. I mean, you know, it's a difficult off-ramp, but this is the point. If you want to quit Donald Trump, 91 felony counts is a great exit sign. And yet nobody seems to want to walk through that door. Claire McCaskill, always wise, the ever sage, former senator from Missouri. Claire, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Alex. Still ahead this evening, the weird, 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 weird world of presidential politics and what this weird, 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 weird footage of Mitch McConnell helps explain about the DeSantis campaign. But first, before that, while Donald Trump attacks the Fulton County DA, the far right is now going after the grand jury. That is next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. One of the comments reads, these jurors have signed their death warrant by falsely indicting President Trump. Threats like that have been lighting up fringe websites this week as the former president's supporters have started zeroing in on members of the Fulton County Grand Jury. 
As NBC News reports, the purported names and addresses of those members have been posted on websites that feature violent rhetoric. Images of people believed to be members of that grand jury have also been posted online. Today, the Fulton County Sheriff's Office responded that it was aware that personal information of members of the Fulton County Grand Jury is being shared on various platforms. The office said it is working to track down the origin of threats in Fulton County and other jurisdictions and to ensure the safety of those individuals who carried out their civic duty. Joining me now is Gwen Keyes Fleming. She is the former DA for DeKalb County in Georgia. Gwen, it's great to have you on the show tonight. And maybe we can just kind of begin with how and why it is customary in the state of Georgia for the names of grand jurors to be included in an indictment. The simple answer is that it's required by Georgia's Code of Criminal Procedure. There is a specific statute that says the grand jurors selected, chosen and sworn in the county of here, Fulton, to wit. And in every indictment that I've seen in my 17 years as a prosecutor, you then go on to list the names of the grand jurors that heard the matter. And you cross off the names of anyone who was either not there that day or didn't hear that evidence. This is required by the code. And the only instance that I've been able to find where it is not required is when the grand jury is investigating a use of force case by a peace officer, a use of deadly force case. And after hearing evidence, they decide not to return an indictment. That is mm. not the case that we have here. So there is it was required by law that these names be listed. And it's unfortunate that some apparently have taken it upon themselves to provide private information about these residents who are doing their civic duty. And now we're seeing the types of threats that we're seeing across uh, it, through various electronic means. Yeah, I would assume that nothing like this has happened before. Is that accurate? And not at least in my experience. And I think what folks need to realize is that when you use electronic communications across state lines, it's not just a local issue for the sheriff to address. That's what brings the federal law enforcement agencies uh, into the play. And so, again, uh, I would assume that that Sheriff Labatt is working with all of the various law enforcement agencies that can bring resources to bear to be able to protect these residents. Can, can I ask, just in terms of the impact that this is going to have on the trial itself, I mean, when there's going to be a new jury that has to be seated and the prospect of witness intimidation, I mean, what impact do you think this has on pretrial motions and just the general climate surrounding the run-up to an actual trial? Well, in my experience, I've seen it where as you get to the actual trial jury, even when you have cameras in the courtroom, the judge orders that those cameras cannot show the jurors' faces. They have to constantly be uh, directed away from the jurors. And in uh, most instances, the only juror that is known is the foreperson who actually signs whether it's a guilty or not guilty verdict. So in that respect, I think there are more protections, or at least there aren't uh, means in the code that require the disclosure of the grand jurors' names or the of the jurors' well, names in a trial sentence. Well, and that seems, given the current landscape, to be a fortunate thing. I got to ask, though, in terms of actually scheduling this trial, there's been a lot of back and forth even today about the proposed schedule that D.A. Fonnie Willis has laid out. Jeffrey Clark, who is one of the co-defendants in this indictment, is saying that um, the arraignment for defendants the week of uh, 
September 5th and a trial on March 4th. They are concerned, Jeffrey Clark is concerned about the political nature of this case and the steps taken by the state thus far. Um, do you, do you, I mean, how much credence do you think uh, the judge is going to give to co-defendants who are calling this all politics? Do you think that, or I guess I should say, how likely it is do you think that D.A. Willis is going to get anything within the ballpark of March 2024 for as far as a trial? Well, two things. First of all, uh, D.A. Willis has said both the night she returned the indictment and throughout the course of her career that she makes her decisions based on the facts, the evidence she can present at trial and the law. She does not make decisions based on partisan politics. And so I find it interesting that those that may view this case through a political lens are transferring that lens to her when she has made it clear that that is not her framing. With respect to the timing, we also heard her say that she was ready to try this case in six months. That may seem ambitious to some, but if you think about it, if she had said anything less than a ready-to-go sort of uh, stance, people would question whether she actually has her witnesses together, her evidence together. And she's making mm. it very clear that she is ready to go. Now, obviously, with the number of defendants that we have, there's going to be a lengthy pretrial motion, lengthy discovery process. But I think it's important to keep things moving. And I think the DA would want to keep things moving so that justice, whatever it may look like based on the facts that are presented at trial, can be achieved as expeditiously as possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Trump defense team has a different date in mind, given the fact that they're trying to schedule a more narrow case on the same topic, the federal indictment or in and around the 2020 election for April of the year 2026. Do you have any thoughts on that? Again, I think it's it's important. Each case needs to be viewed separately. And I can speak to you about what it's like to be the DA in Georgia faced with uh, presenting a case of this caliber, this complexity. Uh, but the key really is to stay focused on your oath, stay focused on the facts and law. And that's exactly what D.A. Willis is doing. Gwen Keyes Fleming, thank you as always for your time and thoughts. Gwen, it's great to see you. My pleasure. When we come back, some new reporting about the presidential campaign of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Some new reporting on that campaign reminds us of this very odd video of Republican Senator Mitch McConnell that was taken nearly 10 years ago. There it is. There he is. Stick around for the explanation why. That's coming up next. What I'm about to show you here might be one of the strangest political campaign videos in history. The video just goes on like that for two and a half minutes. There's no narration. There are no sound bites. It's like the intro to a 90s sitcom where all the characters are played by the senior senator from Kentucky. Now, that video was released by Mitch McConnell's re-election campaign back in 2014. And perhaps you will find it reassuring to know that they had a reason for doing this. Under U.S. campaign finance rules, politicians are prohibited from coordinating with the super PACs that support them. But over the years, campaigns have found creative ways around those rules. 
A campaign watchdog group noted at the time that McConnell's campaign likely put out that video publicly so that his super PAC could then use the footage to make their own Mitch McConnell ads. The plausible deniability for any campaign viol- finance violation here appears to be, hey, we're not coordinating with any super PACs. We just really wanted to make this strange stock footage video. We just needed it to be out there. And the story of that weird video is actually pretty helpful in understanding what just happened with Ron DeSantis's campaign. According to the New York Times, a firm associated with the super PAC that has effectively taken over Mr. DeSantis's presidential campaign posted online hundreds of pages of blunt advice, research memos, and internal polling in early nominating states to guide the Florida governor ahead of the high-stakes Republican presidential debate next Wednesday. That reporting was confirmed by NBC News. The memo urges DeSantis to attack Joe Biden and the media three to five times, state his own positive vision two to three times, because apparently vision is less important than attacking Joe Biden and the media. It instructs Governor DeSantis to hammer Vivek Ramaswamy, the outsider candidate who has been cutting into DeSantis's second place standing. And it urges DeSantis to defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. To be clear, the strategy is to defend the guy who is beating him in the polls by attacking the guy who is losing to him. Now, notably, the memo does not have any plans for what DeSantis should do if Donald Trump actually shows up to the debate. But the question is, why would a firm associated with DeSantis' super PAC post all of that sensitive campaign research online where anyone, including DeSantis' opponents, might see it? We cannot say for sure, but man, it sure seems like an attempt to get around those coordination rules about campaigns and super PACs. In other words, we aren't trying to tell the campaign what to do. We just really wanted to post the sensitive campaign guidance on the Internet. This evening, a DeSantis campaign spokesperson told NBC News, this was not a campaign memo and we were not aware of it prior to the article. Having said that, the debate is less than a week away, and we will all now get to see whether or not Ron DeSantis really does try to execute on that strategy. Have your bingo cards at the ready. The video we are about to show you was captured by a security camera at a conservation center on the Hawaiian island of Maui late Monday night, just hours before devastating wildfires swept the island. It shows a bright flash and then the camera immediately cuts out after losing power. According to a company that monitors power grids across the U.S., this was probably what's known as an arc flash, which can happen when a power line sparks after coming into contact with things like trees or vegetation. When the Conservation Center's camera kicks back on, you can see a fire breaking out in the distance right there, and that was the first of several fires reported early this week. And it, it is important to point out that it is not the exact one that destroyed the coastal town of Lahaina on Maui. The official death toll from all of Maui's wildfires is 111 people, and it is expected to rise with estimates of more than 1,000 people still unaccounted for. But videos like this one from the Conservation Center are adding to scrutiny of Hawaii's largest utility, Hawaiian Electric, as residents are trying to pin down exactly what sparked those catastrophic wildfires. 
Joining me now is Brianna Sachs, disaster and extreme weather reporter for The Washington Post. She was recently on the ground reporting in Hawaii. Brianna, thanks for being here. I found your reporting to be so illuminating in terms of what's going on here. This video, which is, uh, you know, it's it's riveting and very disconcerting. What is the Definitely. can you tell me a little bit more whether this is the, the expectation is that these wildfires were caused by the power by the, these power lines? Is that sort of the working thesis at, at this point? Yes, that came became apparent pretty early on. Uh, residents say that power lines have caused quite a few fires on the island over the years, and they don't deploy a public safety power shutoff program. And there was all these reports from videos and residents themselves of power lines swinging, sparking in the wind. So that's it's definitely the overwhelming sentiment that the power equipment caused the multiple fires on on the island. Yeah. And from your reporting, it sounds like in the run up to these wildfires, these explosive wildfires that just hit Maui, there were there were numerous calls made to the electrical company from residents who were trying to, you know, complain about or at least register lines that were in precarious positions and posed real public safety risks. Is that right? Yes, there's been years of them demanding to the for the power company to put the infrastructure underground to fix the lines, to clear the trees. It's been an ongoing plea from them because they know that they're susceptible to wildfire, especially with drought, making the grass around them much, much drier. And the winds have also gotten increasingly more powerful. It it really sounds like um, Hawaii has been, or Maui in particular, the, the powers that be have been very slow to adapt to the realities of climate change, because not only do you have this electrical grid that seems very uh, precarious, which is the best word I can think of to use, um, but you have the planting of these invasive non-native grasses that are highly flammable. They're all over the island. You have, there's no building standards as there are in California to cr- make sure that buildings are uh, adaptive to wildfires or, or flame retardant, as it were. And then there's an issue with water and shutting down dams. Is that is that what what can you tell us about what is being looked at right now in terms of the various things that need to be ameliorated or changed so that something like this never happens again? There are a lot of factors that go back years that have they're very complicated in terms of land and water rights. But I think the thing is there's this big disconnect, which I found on the ground, is that this place is prone to wildfire. Everyone knows there's a wildfire. They happen every year. Yet officials just don't think of wildfires. They're dialed in for hurricane response, yet they did not deploy their hurricane sirens to warn residents about this incoming uh, danger. They're under immense scrutiny for for that. As And the grasslands is a, a big problem. There's a lot of issues with plantation lands shutting down, developers, who's responsible for managing these lands, taking water away from native Hawaiians and diverting it toward the resorts. Um, the fire hydrants ran out of water. That is not the first time that this has happened. There's been multiple account or pleas for accounts for past fires, and it's unclear whether any investigations had been dug into the causes of those fires. So it the residents feel like they were just really set up for this to happen. 
What's you were just you just I think got back from Hawaii. What can you yeah, tell us about? I, like, I don't know what time zone I'm in right now, but um, okay. I did just get back. <laughs> yeah. What I mean, what can you tell us about the response as it stands right now? Because the stories we're hearing are that locals are not getting what they need. We know President Biden is going to be visiting, I think, next week on Monday. But what about the disaster response? Has it been in any way adequate? I mean, we're hearing about people kind of crowdfunding it's been, to get it's supplies been and. Yeah. Yeah. So the, again, going back to the fact that these people, these, these, um, specifically natives, this is not their first rodeo. So they have this disaster response infrastructure set up that just came online in really impressive speed. They're called pods. They had distribution centers that they were running set up and they're talking on walkie talkies because power and comms has been, um, an issue, So they were really wondering why 72 hours after this fire, it's one of the biggest ports in the world, why there wasn't more supplies coming in, why it took so long to get federal and state resources. It's definitely much more bustling now than it was a week ago, but people are still struggling for information. Well, thank you so much for the reporting you've been doing from there, Brianna Sachs. It just it has been essential and again so illuminating. Thanks for your time oh, tonight. You. We appreciate it. Thanks. All right. That is our show for this evening.